Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Formula E Zone podcast. I think we're on episode 11 now, and we'll be today we'll be reviewing the Bernie Prix and looking at the major talking points. Now, there was definitely quite a few talking points that we'll be getting into in this podcast. But with me today, as always, from E4MLD, is Tobias Bloom. Hey-ho! Thanks for having me on once again. How are you, Jack? Happy birthday, first of all. Happy birthday Thank you. To you. We are recording this on my birthday. I know. Another year goes. What? The time's just flying. Time's just flying. How How old are you now? How old are you now? Twelve. How old am I now? I, am, <laughs> I probably sound like a twelve-year-old. That's probably true. Um, I probably act like an eight-year-old. But twenty-four. 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 <sighs> twenty-four now. That old. Getting old. Nearly a quarter of a century. One more year to go. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, but thank you so much for that. Um, Burn Epre, like where do we start? I'll tell you where we we'll start. We'll start with qualifying. We'll get qualifying out of the way because qualifying, you know, it was a pretty standard qualifying session, but there were some really interesting things that came out of it, especially from Group One, because we had Vern who was in Group One who did a stellar lap. I think you know we were talking about in the last podcast that you know it might not be Vern's weekend. It's you know a championship where you know Vern's a new race. It's everything. Everything could be up in the air. And what happens? Vern says, "Don't be silly." <laughs> you know I've got this, and he puts in a free attempt clear in Group One than the rest. And it was really important because then you had. Degrassi and the Costa, who were remember in the, in this fight for this championship, going into qualifying and needing that good result, really and truly needing to out qualify John Eric Vern, and they just don't get a lap together at all. I think they were eight temps off um, John Eric Vern and starting towards the back of the grid, whereas John Eric Vern made it through to Super Pole. Amazing, right? Yeah, John Eric Vern made it through to Super Pole in the end. He qualified on pole position, and um, we had Lucas Degrassi, the other one, other major championship player. In qualifying group one, starting from P19, we had Antonio Felix da Costa, also not the biggest championship uh, protagonist this year, but he started from P20, and it didn't look good for those guys, but especially we were all surprised by John Regverne, obviously, because getting out of group one into Super Bowl is a major achievement, and then under pressure from very, very fast guys as well, Evans qualified for Super Bowl, Buemi, Verline and Bird qualified for Super Bowl, along with someone else we're having to talk about. And, I mean, what I'm saying is these guys really are competitive and very quick on a hot lap. Jesus Christ, did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies about that. <laughs> so these guys um, that were very quick on a hot lap. and um, Just like that person. Yeah, just like that person. I have no idea what happened <laughs> out here outside my window. Um yeah, but beating them in qualifying is is very good from Vern. And there was the other guy I, I yeah, didn't want uh, to mention at first. Uh, do you know who he was? Who that person that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, the one and only Maxi Gunther. He was, yeah. Very quick all day. I was really surprised by his pace. Not not really Pichito's pace. He was. The average driver again in uh, Bern, but Max Gunther really surprised me with his pace. 
been lightning quick in practice sessions already. He finished FP1 in P7 and FP2 in... Oh, let me lie about this. Uh, well, P13. Not the best result. But he qualified for Super But Pro. it's only practice. It's only practice. And uh, he might have had some traffic on his lap. I can't really remem remember that. But he was very quick all day and uh, showed that again in, in qualifying and qualifying for Super Pole. Ultimately ended up starting the race from P5. Yeah, it was a great job. Like, it's amazing really to think how he was dropped earlier in the season by Dragon. Um, considering since he's come back, he's been like a completely... Well, to be fair, at the beginning of the season, it maybe it's more credit to, to Dragon Car that it wasn't really that great but obviously Dragon have moved forward with their car and, and Gunther's really moved forward with it and obviously he missed those races um, mid-season when Felipe Nasa came in and you know a driver like Felipe Nasa is a very good driver he's very talented but coming into a, a season midway through he didn't really shine really struggled didn't take to the championship like the likes of Oliver Rowland and Pascal Verline so I feel like even with rookies now, you there's not you don't have time to bed into the championship anymore like Felipe Nasa did. Um, but whereas Maxi Gunther, to be fair, since he's come back has been has been brilliant, and you know he's been on this race by race basis, and I'm sure he's in for the rest of the season. But if he's not signed up for Dragon next season, like there's a really good race driver out there. He is arousing interest from other teams though. Um, I can't. I I know for a fact from a source within the team that he has been not the least popular of drivers on the driver market, and um, of course Dragon are looking possibly looking to resigning him. Um, but he had interest from other teams going into season six as well. So it'll be very interesting to see what what happens to his his ambitions and his contract next year. Um, but as you say, he's really improved a lot this year. Thinking back to his his first race in uh, Adiria, and then being dropped by the team halfway through the season for Felipe Nasa, who we, ha we haven't heard a word of in the meantime, apart from in in, in IMSA, obviously. Um, but it's ever since he's been back, Max has been improving a lot, and uh, this last weekend only shows how much he's improved. And um, yeah, very very great. Um, well, it was an application for next year, was it? Um, yeah, yeah, 100%. It was like a drive... Well, to be fair, he's been driving as if he's been in the shop window ever since he's been back. Because I feel like... Mm -hmm. Well, depending on what teams are moving on from drivers and what drivers are deciding to leave the series, then if if there are openings, which we know there are in a couple of places, you know, potentially Audi, how amazing could that be for him? Oh, yeah. You know... He's he's been driving as if he he needs to secure a drive for next season, and I, he's doing everything that he needs to be doing. So I'm just going to run down quickly the rest of the qualifiers. So we had Mitch Evans in that Jaguar again in second place. That Jaguar just finding one lap pace and improving, improving, and you know maybe Jaguar for season six could be a team now that we could see it more at the front of the field um, with Mitch, Buemi doing a great job for P3. Pascal Verline coming back. So a new track where everything's sort of a bit more equal and Pascal Verline's back where I think he should be, P4. And then we had, obviously, Gunther in P5 and Sam Bird in P6. Did make a mistake on his flying lap. But that was your top six. Anything you want to mention else from qualifying? Mm -mm, because nothing happened. <laughs> Literally nothing <laughs> happened apart from good laps from Gunther and Van. Apart from that... Even in practice, we I, I was expecting one or the other 
yellow flag situation or maybe even a red flag because the circuit and ban really was tight and narrow but pretty much nothing happened in, in practice and or in qualifying um yeah so so fair enough good on them um i don't have that much to add to qualifying and i think we can head straight into yeah, the I race i think i think lotterra and robin Franz, the other two drivers in the championship fight going into the mm, race yeah. um we're in we're in the back end of uh, the top 10 like in eighth and ninth um going into race but that that's sort of qualified now the race start this is where hmm. it gets interesting <laughs> as I, obviously everyone knows um listen to the podcast and probably why everyone's here to probably actually like listen to the podcast so let's get straight into it first corner cars get away amazingly they go flying down the hill and then we come to that turn 13 14 chicane and mayhem strikes that was to be expected to be honest though yeah yeah what's your take the first thing i'm gonna say the first thing I'm going to say, so this is what happened. Let's just get, tell everyone just to remind everyone what yeah. happened. So basically, it was the tiniest of touches. So Evans and Vern got through, but Bawemi, you know, trying to avoid Evans or not collide into Evans, you know, to, was more of an acute angle into the first part of the corner and then had to swing. Verline sort of put his nose in or was a little bit alongside, but they touched. Now, it was the faintest of touches. Like, it wasn't a touch that was significant. And... Like massively, it did turn Verline's car a little bit, and that turned Verline's car into the Tech Pro barrier. Now, with the track in Burn being so narrow, that caused the roadblock. So, my question to you, and this is what I put on on Twitter as well, I felt that the Tech Pro barrier, the only reason we had that red flag, um, was simply because that there was a Tech Pro barrier there instead of a bollard or some sausage curbs mm. that we could have cut. You could argue that it was a bit narrow, but I think the Tech Pro Barrier caused that red flag. If it wasn't there, Verline would have either escaped across the curb or hit the sausage curb and carried on. And, you know, there might have been a bit of argy-bargy at the back, but I don't think we would have had a red flag. That's a good thought, actually. Yeah. Um, I think we would have seen people try not trying to cut, but we would have had the race director trying to manage people cutting across the circuit then. Um... Uh, difficult to tell and I I still feel like we should we should talk about circuit design and track design because not only the uh, turn 12, 13, 14 chicane but also um, the area around turns that's not turn 7, turn oh hang on one second uh, turn 9, should be turn 9 10 yeah. and 11, these last couple of corners, they were narrow and yeah you couldn't pass through there it was, it, there was a, it was set up to have like a pass there like it was a long straight but it was just, you could never get a car side yeah. by side or if you got a car side by side you did you had to get your elbows out and actually touch the sideboard of the other car yeah and that's not the only location on the circuit as well o- on the track map it looked as if we had plenty of overtaken opportunities maybe turn one even maybe turn three maybe turn seven and then then turn turns nine and twelve as well um but they didn't really turn out to be too great for overtaking because obviously they were a lot narrower than than we all expected them to be um so i would argue that the turn one incident maybe is in part to blame because we had a wall there um and that all of that could have been avoided if 
people who had just the opportunity to cut across the chicane. But it's also down to the design of the corners. And it's difficult because that obviously is the first corner after the start straight. So theoretically, you could have to, you could argue that you could just simply move the start straight to another place on the circuit. But that was very difficult as well. Um, then you could argue, let's just take the chicane out, which would be a sensible argument, but then the start-finish straight would be so long that turn one would be very clumsy indeed. Um, yep, not really sure what to do about it. Maybe taking the Tech Pro out would have been a solution to avoid the incident on lap one, but it still would have been very close and very... Uh, not really sure what the right word for it is. I'm, I'm not saying that we wouldn't have had a red flag because, yeah. you know, we then had the Frines incident as well with Jerome D'Ambrosio hitting Frines and Frines coming across the track and, you know, recovery vehicle and it might have been easier to throw a red flag and restart the race to clear that collision. That could have easily been a red flag or we could have easily have had a safety car in that, in that period. But what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, previous Formula E have done this before where they've had, you know, the Bollard... The sausage curve. Even back into season one, Beijing, you know, they had a long straight and it had just had two quick chicanes. There was no tech pro barriers to uh, to separate those chicanes. It was just sausage curves. In Alexander de Platz, in the turn after the hairpin, that that chicane was bollard and and sausage curves. Putrajira was also uh, was also bollard sausage curves. Long Beach was. Sausage curbs and bollards. So there's a theme that we did have chicanes with sausage curbs and bollards, and they did work. We did see cars cutting the track, but we 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 have decided, and it's popped up in quite a few Formula E tracks, is that we've now put in a Tech Pro barrier. So that means you know, think Mexico for example, um, with the last corner, there's a Tech Pro barrier there, and you know that it's a bit wider, of course, it's because it's a normal track, but there's a Tech Pro barrier there. And, you know, it's a real narrow bit. So if you get that wrong, you have to get this. It's, you know, it's probably as narrow as the burn street to stop that car and go through after the tech pro barrier. So we've began to introduce those tech pro barriers and just looking at it. And it was a recipe for disaster because one incident, it doesn't matter. It didn't even matter if it was the first corner. They could, someone could have just outbreak themselves by themselves hit that barrier and cause the road blockage. And we would have had to red flag it for an incident, for example. So say like, I don't know, I'm not going to say a Formula E driver's name, uh, but someone could have easily locked up and caused the roadblock and we would have had to red flag the session because you have to recover that car. Hmm. Yep. So whoever did whoever did the risk assessment for that corner hmm. should really like really look at themselves and go, how on earth did I create such a monstrosity? And especially it being the first turn after the after the start as well, people were okay with it yeah. on on one lap runs, and we didn't see any incidents whatsoever in in practice or qualifying. And it maybe a couple of lockups, but that's okay. You can just cut the chicane because the the attack probe wasn't connected to the outside barrier of the circuit. It was just there in the middle of the road, uh, so that it. Yeah, okay. It was a deterrent. Yeah. I, I know it's supposed to act as a deterrent. Yep. But, yeah, as you're saying, with the first corner, you can't... It's just used as a recipe for disaster. Yep. 
We're not going back to Bern, uh, so we won't have to talk about that topic for too long, though. Um, we're never going to do this again. Uh, we're not no going to do this everyone. again. Uh, We've lived and learned. We decide. We knew before the calendar, <laughs> when the calendar was released for the last episode, we knew we weren't going back. So it was like, no, well, we've lived and learned. We know it's not going to work, so we just <laughs> won't go back. Yeah, and especially... <laughs> Bern really wasn't too... I mean, I don't want to say Bern wasn't too friendly to Formula E because in the end we had 130,000 people turning up in the e-village uh, throughout the event. Obviously, everyone passing through the streets is counted as a visitor of Formula E, so that has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But the official number is 130,000 visitors, but all was yeah, overshadowed a bit by protesters on Thursday night in Thursday night. Uh, yeah. What do you think? You were there. You were in Bern. I, yeah. Like, we haven't even mentioned that you were actually. Oh there. yeah. By the way, I wasn't Bern. You were in Bern. <laughs> you saw the protests. Yep. Like just moving on quickly as a side note. Um, <sighs> what What were they? I know. I know what they were about. But like, explain to the viewers. Like, what were they about? Mm. Why were they were doing it? And so. Yeah. Forth. The thing is, the circuit was in part leading around a very crowded. Um. Well, just area where people live. They had their homes there. I think two or three schools were within the infield of the circuit. Um, so obviously residents weren't happy about it. And um, Bern apparently is a very... It's a s very popular place for students to go. And uh, so the, the Bern is one of the rather left leftist um, towns in Switzerland. And apparently it was a very political thing having Formula E there. And residents complain about obviously having their everyday lives being disrupted. There were complaints about, or there were question marks about whether Formula E really is that sustainable as they say. Because when we build up race circuits, and I can, I can see where they're coming from, most of the time the circuits aren't being built with electric vehicles. There are diesel uh, lorries uh, bringing all the barriers to the circuit and basically it's just a lot of emissions um, that are being set out even before the race starts. And people were complaining about that and um, yeah, it turned into a very political thing and there was an organization they were involved in last year's Zurich Ypri as well and um, were part of of the protest against it um, yeah very I, I mean I can understand their frustration uh, because I wouldn't want I mean I, I would want it because it's formulary but as a normal as the, the average average Joe I would I wouldn't really want to have my everyday 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 life disrupted by it as well um by any any major event even marathons they are annoying and all of that um yeah but the very the, the worst thing of all is not the protests and not them riding their bicycles through Bern uh, protesting against formerly they actually destroyed most of the advertisement banners track sites uh, the stuff you put on the walls and um they cut through not really sure what type of cables, but word on the street was it was TV cables and timing cam uh, cables, and that all resulted in uh, total damages of 400,000 Swiss francs, uh, which is around 380 euros, I think. 
uh, no three hundred sixty euros. And uh, let me just quickly uh, Google that. I think that would be about three forty. Yeah, three twenty three thousand pounds in in the UK. Three twenty three thousand. Okay, not not as much. Not as uh, the exchange rate is not as bad. Yeah, as I but think. but but still, and um, that kind of overshadowed all of Thursday and Friday. Um, not really the mm, yeah, not really necessary for them to do that. Um, I see their frustration, I, I but there are better ways to protest against major yeah. events in your city. Like it, it reminds me of London because I remember I was very heavily involved with the London protest, and you, when you mentioned about obviously like the diggers and stuff and the lorries and how many there were, I remember seeing it at Battersea Park. There was tons. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you're just you're just like. I know Formula E and I know Formula E's financial situation isn't, you know, currently the healthiest, technically. But I feel like should Formula E be doing something to progress, like, lorries and making them and building up lorries that are are more energy efficient? They are, yeah. So they can use those lorries. Yep. But I don't think Formula E currently has the money to do that and the technology isn't there yet. I think once the technology is there to make some sort of electric lorry, Formula E will be there and it will be there to you know say okay look we are energy efficient we're doing as much as we can yep but until that technology is there to actually make a, a sort of an electric lorry electric diggers so they're not fuel guzzlers then there isn't there really truly there isn't much Formula E can do about that which is the difficult thing and I understand the protest and that's the as I said before when Formula E deciding track like city locations, there's always going to be, no matter what city we go to, no matter how much a city is really interested in hosting a race, there's always going to be people who are like, I don't want this. Of course, you know, yeah. Because it is, it's, it's not, we don't see, you know, well, you do, but really and truly, when you watch a race on a Saturday, the average fan doesn't see the three-week build-up to put that race together of bridges you have to make the bridges for people to walk over you've got to make the advertising boards that barriers have got to come in roads have got to close and you don't see that three-week period which you know i think you saw when we were in berlin for alexander the platz i saw in london for battersea park and even though battersea park was inside a park but the amount of lorries and construction and you know bits that were blocked off park park being blocked off to people you know, and you know, little tiny sections only being available in a park in central London. Just it, it did seem mad. But yeah, again, like you said, I loved it because it was Formula E. It was <laughs> in my back garden, technically. Yep. But to a lot of people who don't like motorsport, that's that's you know annoying and 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 invading in, in a sense. And especially but in, I think we've touched on that. Especially in in Switzerland. Let me just uh, add in this one more point. Especially in Switzerland people seemed maybe that's just me being german but see the people seemed very peculiar about racing in general because obviously they didn't have any any motorsports in in bern for 60 years and when i spoke to protesters uh, they were gathering on parliament square uh, so bern is it's not really the official capital city of, of switzerland it's all very weird they don't have an official capital uh, written down in their constitution but their parliament is in bern so it's technically still the capital city and they were gathering on parliament square and when i spoke to a couple of them they were just of course arguing against all the construction going on in their back garden uh, but also against motorsport in general because they are not used to it they 
felt motorsport was unsafe, they felt motorsport was unnecessary, and that's just a that's been just a general, yeah, just general disapproval of uh, racing and yeah. But still, um, I think we've talked about it all. Um, yeah, it's become a cult. It's become a culture in Switzerland that racing isn't. You know, ever since the Le Mans incident all the way back yeah. in the fifties, it's like. You know, it's it's just become a culture, and you know you're asking people to change their culture, um, and being told something for so long, and then to change it one afternoon, it, yeah. it's, it can be a bit crazy. Right, lovely sidetrack, <laughs> but let's get back on to um, yep. the red flag incident let's. because okay, so we talked about the track layout and you know tech pro barrier, but then we had this really weird incident where because it really and truly was sparked by the Costa and. Grassy not doing any fault of their own because obviously they've they've gone through the, the mayhem so they've avoided the bit at the back they've avoided Frines and and De Costa coming together they've avoided that they can't take to the the part that's blocked off so they've taken the only usable bit of track which is that little bit where you stop and you go right and I think this is where I have an issue is that it took it was clear it was a red flag situation clear as day the track was blocked. It took them about 30 seconds, 35 seconds to throw a red flag. And that's where this argument came of, well, we've done nearly a full lap. Like, surely we must have crossed, they hadn't crossed the timeline, but that's where the driver was saying, well, I was eight. I've been eight for 35 seconds. I didn't crash. I just went through the bit safe bit that I could go through and and went through and carried on the race. Like, how did we not cross the timing line? Because it took so long for the, for the red flag to actually come out. So... Because the grassy and the Costa had moved from their low starting point of 19th and 20th into P8 and P9. And they needed those desperate points and they needed to catch up. But they were relegated back. So what the FIA decided to do was to revert, which was also sensible. I'm not saying it wasn't sensible, but... And with no timing line being there, it seemed like the only logical thing to do. But that relegated them back to 18th and 19th, so they lost those 10 positions. So, Tobias, what did you think about the restart situation? Absolutely the correct decision to go for the starting order. And I'll tell you why. Because, obviously, it took a reasonably long time for r the race direction uh, to communicate with each other and with the marshal posts and all of that took some time. And we had the red flag being thrown around 30 seconds after the incident occurred. And there are... And you have to keep that in mind. Eleven timing beams uh, around the circuit, so we don't have just these three sectors. We always hear about. In fact, there are twelve sectors with eleven timing timing lines in between. Uh, does that make sense? Is that eleven or twelve sectors then? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. One hundred percent. I'm right. with you. Um, I hope everyone else is. And um, you have to cross any of these timing lines so that the race direction has an idea of where these cars are thing is, in the rules and the regulations of Formary, it is clearly stated that all data, or, or that the race director has to go back once a red flag is thrown to the order uh, he had of all cars before the incident happened. And that just wasn't the case. So you had around, yeah, maybe 10 to 15 cars go across some timing line, one of these 11 timing beams, um, after the incident. They all cut across the chicane, and I think the first timing line 
uh, or the, or, yeah, it, it was the first time, and it was obviously the starting line, um, and we still had the starting grid order then. And the second timing beam was on the finish line, uh, which was right after the of the, the chicane, uh, because the, the start and finish line had been offset uh, just because of the pit lane not fitting on onto that uh, straight of, of the start line. Very weird, but uh, by the regulations, uh, you have to have the uh, timing line of being... Oh, very weird. Too much timing, too many lines. Um, you have to have the um, um, finish line in between pit in and pit out. So let's just boil it down to these simple few uh, pointers. Um, first timing line, the starting line, second timing line, the finish line. And the race director needed to have data of all cars uh, to reset uh, the grid and reshuffle the grid. Thing is... The, the moment he threw the red flag, um, eight cars didn't cross the... Or seven cars, not sure about that. So seven or eight cars didn't pass the finish line. So he had data of 15 cars or 14 cars, but he didn't have data of all cars. And that's the only reason we couldn't go back to any, any reshuffled order. Had the incident happened in turn one, so that left-hander after the finish line and after the chicane, had it happened there, we would have seen a new order for the restart. But the last point the race direction had all data had data available from all cars was the race start, and that's the reason we went back to the uh, starting order. And in my eyes, that's absolutely correct and uh, the only reasonable way of going about things. Having said that, I of course understand Lucas de Grassi and Pachita Lopez and uh, Antonio Felix da Costa and Felipe Massa all complaining about it with their South American temperament. <coughs> um, obviously, <laughs> apart from Felix da Costa, of course. But uh, I understand their frustration about it because some of them were in the championship hunt and were fighting for the title before Bern. Uh, I'd argue some of them are not afterburn, uh, so I understand their frustration. And um, they were lashing out against the race direction even after the race, on Twitter and then the media pen and all of that. Uh, it was very wild after the race, in fact. Um, oh, it was great drama. It was great drama. It felt like a soap. I know like that's a really weird thing to say on a podcast, but <laughs> there's like a soap is like a episode like I think many people may have heard of EastEnders, but it just felt like that. Everyone just moaning, shouting, I can't believe you're doing this. You're rubbish, you're wrong. It was just great. It was great. Sound, it was great TV. I loved it. Sounds more like Love Island though. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a love island. Mean, that's that's that that's like a soap in itself. <laughs> and and that's more that's more um that's more relatable, I suppose, than EastEnders. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, it was it was great, but I do agree it was probably the most um, uh, correct way to to do it. And it's just I I get the driver's point as you say, but rules are rules, regulations are regulations. Maybe it's something they could look at. It would have been fun to have the grassy in eighth, and that maybe at least keep the title fight alive because with Burn being so hard to overtake, which we'll get onto now, like getting through the field for De Costa and Degrassi to keep their championship hopes alive were basically nil. So that qualifying session that they had ruined their championship ch chances of um, in the final two races in New York. But I think what really the main crux of the race came down to, and also I want to sort of mention that 
the burn circuit for me reminded me of Bathurst. It was really narrow as we've been talking about it, but it was quite flowing and it had a real good rhythm to it. And I, I actually really enjoyed watching the cars battle it out through, uh, through the streets. So, so I know we talk about track design and, and the narrowness of it, and obviously Formula probably couldn't do too much about that, but I really enjoyed watching it just as the flow of a circuit. I thought it was really good, and it's a shame that we're not going back. I know it's probably too narrow, and it's probably good that we're not going back in that sense, but I really enjoyed the race. But the main crux of the race really was Jean-Eric Verne out in front, and Mitch Evans, this Jaguar has just come out of, well, I say come out of nowhere, it's won a race, but <laughs> it same sort of came out of nowhere to win that race and sort of fell away again, now it's back. And it was back with, it was arguably the quickest race car. You could maybe say Verne wasn't pushing it too much, not taking any risk for the championship, being in the lead, had nothing to lose, just needed to park the car on the apex. But you could argue that Mitch Evans had the fastest car all weekend. I wouldn't say all weekend, but in the race, he was much yeah. quicker than Jeff. Which, you know, he was, but then you, you don't expect it. Like, I, I still, for me, I, when I think of Jaguar fighting for, for race wins, I'm like, it's like it's like seeing Red Bull challenge for race wins. You don't expect it. Um, even though they're, you know they're a quick car, you're like, wow, they're actually they're doing it. It's like it, it, it mind boggles you for a minute, but then you realise that once they've got a car to do it, they're like, they can do it. And I'll tell you what, Mitch did everything right. And I, I think Burn again with a track layout, you know, attack mode was Evans's best chance. But and the great thing for him was that he didn't lose any time taking attack mode, which probably on this track worked. I'm a big advocate for making sure attack mode actually loses you time, but on a track that was this narrowed, and you know, by the time you've caught up, you've run out of time using attack mode, and you've got nowhere to overtake anyway. So at least you had that chance, and he he, he tried to undercut Verd twice with his attack modes, but there was just no way through. It was very difficult to overtake him, but we touched on that earlier, and it just was the case of it being very difficult to overtake him. But it it was possible. Um, we've seen Lucas de Grassi and uh, we talked about him a bit early and his starting position remember he started the race uh, from P19 he ended up uh, yeah. finishing in P9 so he overtook 10 cars although in fairness he got gifted two positions uh, because one was penalised the other one retired but still uh, Lucas de Grassi did a fantastic job in Bern and showed that it is possible to overtake what isn't possible, though, is to overtake Jean-Éric Verne and Bern, um, because he was amazing once again. He just didn't have the quickest car of all. In my opinion, Mitch Evans was the best driver on Saturday, and he thoroughly deserved the win. Um, but it's just yeah, a if very you took it, then you yeah, wouldn't. it's just very difficult to overtake in Bern, and. Um, I'd just put it down to uh, the design of the corners once again, it being too narrow and having too too few overtaken opportunities, like real overtaken opportunities. Um, if the race happened in, I don't know, Berlin or New York, the rounds before or after Bern, Evans would have won the race, without a question. I mean, the outside would have been different, I know that, but on that day, Mitch Evans was a lot quicker than than Bern, and uh, he would have won the race if it all happened on another circuit. To be fair though, he did get close. Like, oh, very close. The, the run up the hill, and you know he, you you, but as I said, it was, Vern just defended. He just he he knew where to put the car, 
which was the most important thing, because Vern was trying around the outside of that fast. I think it's turn three, going up the hill. Turn and four. then it goes downhill yeah. into that little left-hander when they go up the hill again to towards turn six. So turn three into turn four, maybe turn five, then turn six at the top. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, you know, you felt like he's going, but it was just always going to get squeezed out. There was just, you felt like there was enough room. The only time, and with, especially with attack mode, like attack mode looked like it was the only way to overtake because having that extra bit of energy, and maybe if it was 35 kilowatts, maybe if it was that extra 10 kilowatts that it would be <laughs> in season six, that could have been enough just to get him alongside and actually make Vern back out of it going up that hill because he got so close and especially into turn six as well because he was like on the inside. Maybe if he had that extra 10 kilowatts, that could have been enough to put his nose a bit more, make Vern go, okay, I've got to give him space. Or maybe even down that hill into turn three. Um, we saw yeah. Sam Burt pull off an amazing overtake on Max Gunter there. Uh, possibly the move, the best move we've ever seen in, in the history of Formula E. The other one I'm, I'm thinking of was Bird again uh, in Mexico City a couple of years ago, also around the outside, but his move on, on Gunter into turn three was amazing. Uh, so it was possible to overtake there. And you're right, maybe with 10x that's what I love about form That's what I love about these narrow tracks. Yep. Okay, that's what I really love, is that when you see an overtaking move, yes, they're narrow, but you're so unexpected and they're so brilliant that it makes the whole race worthwhile in a sense. You just like you you've got that moment of just wow. And that's what I like at some tracks. Like I don't want every race to have really good overtaking moves and there's guaranteed overtaking moves. Obviously that's great for the show and great for the sport as well, because you do want overtaking. You don't want processional races. Like we sort of saw in, in Bern. But, you know, when we saw that overtake, we were like, wow. Yeah. That's and I feel like you need that in motorsport yeah, sometimes. That's been arguably my move of the season, if not the m best move I've ever seen in the history of the sport. Because it gave you that wow moment. Yeah. And I just feel like you want some corners, you know. And again, it's building up. We were talking about it earlier, like about like iconic, iconic, there we go, iconic tracks. But iconic corners. Like there's corners around the world which are iconic. Maggots, Beckett's, Eau Rouge. You know, corners that make you go, wow, when you're watching a car. And again, we're formally building these street tracks. You want maybe one day to find an iconic corner where you just go, wow. If you do something there, that's just brilliant. Like, it just shows how good of a driver you are. And obviously, it's really early days for Formula to do something like that. And obviously, with races switching around, and it becomes difficult building up an iconic corner. But I feel like that had an and a, a chance to maybe even yep. become something like an iconic corner because it was so it was it was quick and it provided a chance to overtake and if you got it right it was going to be spectacular absolutely yeah have you heard about the St. Moritz rumour today uh, no. we would see a corner similar to that so the Swiss Epre always was supposed to switch switch towns and for 2020 it was, it was supposed to be going back to Zurich um, but we didn't find any Swizzy pre on the season six draft calendar uh, last week, and uh, we're already wondering about what what happened to the race. And uh, as it turns out, Zurich didn't give the permission to uh, build a racetrack there. Plan was to have oh. the circuit go around the uh, university campus in in Zurich, but they felt that the changes that changes that 
would have been necessary weren't sustainable enough for the campers and uh, they decided not to allow the uh, construction of any racetrack and uh, that was the last chance for FE basically, uh, the campers and now Zurich didn't give permission for anything uh, so we're not going to Zurich and uh, today it turns out the uh, village of St. Moritz which is a very very popular winter sports uh, site um, yeah. very popular for I think it's downhill skiing in St. Moritz yeah. um, or ski jumping I'm really bad in winter sports yeah, one, uh, of one of those alpine things the Swiss do um, <laughs> so a, pretty much a village of 5,000 people and they were saying that they are willing to offer and I'm quoting the uh, mayor of St. Moritz here offer asylum to Formula E um okay. and we would see fantastic fantastic uh corners there because obviously it's very very m- if it's mountainous, mountainous there. which i'm thinking yeah. it is then you you're set for some you're set for some good corners and uh, possibly a really good racetrack yeah but but it'd be interesting to see how that might affect but again that's a, again about thinking about how yeah. that affects the local area and also you know, we're hearing Budapest, we're hearing city after city after city after city wanting to be part of Formula E. You can't have everyone on yeah. there. So it'd be interesting to see what yeah. happens, I think. I think that's one to one to keep an eye on. I feel like I digressed a bit on that. Um. <laughs> it's fine, but you know what I mean. It's just like, yeah, like it's great that another city in, in Switzerland wants to race, but then so many other people want an opportunity to be on the Formula E calendar like Budapest that keeps growing and growing and growing every couple of months when you hear about it and uh, you know it wouldn't surprise me if that's on the season 7 calendar wouldn't surprise me as well no and and so St. Moritz that's 12 months away a very short time frame to actually pull off exactly so so take that so be interesting yeah. but I you know it's been done before um, so we're just I think that's just one you have to to wait and see so what we're going to do now is we're just going to wrap up really the race result because, as we said, it was really tight to overtake, so there actually wasn't that much overtaking towards the top end of the, the field, apart from that Sam Bird, uh, Pascal Verline incident. So we had John Verne coming home to take victory in Bern and basically put one hand on, on this title with Mitch Evans coming through in seconds. Obviously, what I just realised, which I haven't mentioned, the race towards the end was... Got a bit sketchy for Vern, and he didn't take any risks with the rain coming down, but he managed, he managed to pull it off, okay, because it really got a bit nervous towards the end with that fight, didn't it? It was very sketchy in the end, yeah. Uh, with the rain coming down as well, um, it was very, very close uh, in the last two and a half laps, and it reminded me a bit of, the rain reminded me a bit of uh, Spa, where in some parts of the track it was raining and in others it was not. I spoke to a couple of people after the race and they were standing in turn one and saying it's bone dry out here. How are we seeing on the big screens that it's rainy in the other side on, on the other side of the track? Um, but that's, I don't know, almost a kilometer away from, th- from where they were standing. So some parts of the circuit were very wet and uh, some parts yeah, weren't. Yeah, turn nine, seven, that, that area, seven, that was really wet. It was really Absolutely, wet. yeah. Like, unbelievably heavy rain, like we saw in Paris. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, the area around the chicane where we had the lap one incident, that then turn one, turn two, the downhill section, 
that was dry in the beginning, but wet then turned uh, turned wet very quickly. Um, so the uh, conditions were changing all the time, and that's very dangerous for the drivers as well because you have no way of knowing how good the drip, the grip is going to be, uh, especially on the first lap of of uh, rainy conditions. Um, you have no idea uh, about how how much grip you're going to have, and especially being Jean-Rick Verne, who doesn't even have the advantage of well seeing other people going into that into these corners ahead of him and uh, not having the chance of kind of copying their driving style and their braking points. So that was very, not dangerous, but very tricky and um, very fun to watch as well. Well managed. Yeah, and it was, I was on the edge of my seat, which is what you want watching most, what you want to be on the edge of your seat, and I definitely was for those final two laps. So as I said, Evans then, so Verne first, Evan was second, and then... We had Sebastian Buemi, home mm. race, picking up picking up podium. Really good for him. Really good, yeah. And especially after all all Nissan had to go through in these last few days, um, with them basically having to throw away their Season 6 setup. They were obviously planning on continuing on with their twin MGU, um, but now they're having to revert back to the single motor setup. And... Um, operationally and administratively that's a big challenge for the team so um and especially looking back uh, also looking back at at their last few races uh they've always been lightning quick in qualifying but then didn't seem to have too much efficiency in the race and oliver roland was very disappointing in the other nissan and uh, he retired after contact with the war halfway through the race uh and basically we didn't hear anything about Oli all all weekend but uh in spite of Nissan's efficiency problems Buemi finishing on the podium uh, that's very good for the team very good for him as well obviously the home hero uh, he was able to bring his son up to the podium as well which was very great to see and just very deserved for for Nissan Edams and then we had Andre Lodder and I feel sorry hmm. for Andre Lodder Andre Lodder because so, he he crossed the line in fourth. Great race, fantastic. Came, you know, made some great overtaking moves. And to be fair, another driver that really and truly shone this week uh, in the race. But he was caught up in that first corner incident where he had to come in and change his front nose cone. And obviously the red flag was called, and he went into the pits to like fix it. But it was the wrong thing to do. But then there was the red light at the end of the pit lane. So. He crossed that red line, which is obviously it's a massive no-no. So the penalty is like really it stands, but like what? He, well, I suppose if he could have technically he could have waited for the FIA to give him the nod. Okay, you can go and wait at the end of the pit lane. But I think with all the craziness, I think he just drove through because he realised, oh, I shouldn't be in the pit lane. They can't touch. I need to go here. So he drove there, and then after an amazing drive to finish in fourth place and to keep his championship hopes alive, again another driver in the championship fight. And he gets stumped with a drive-through penalty equivalent to 22 seconds after the race, which dropped him outside the points, which then promoted Sam Bird into fourth place. Uh, Tobias, what do you think about Andre Lotterer? I have to say, and I'm really sorry that I have to say so, but I fully agree with the penalty because he was very conscious about it. And um, we spoke to him after the race and... He argued that it was his team advising him to just continue on and continue on. 
obviously you're supposed to be entering the pit lane once a red flag is called, um, but the drivers were not able to enter the pit lane uh, because the track was blocked uh, in the chicane. And uh, that's the reason we uh, first were going to the start straight, and once the chicane had been cleared, uh, the drivers were directed by the safety car into the pit lane. And Lotterer uh, did the reasonable thing and sensible thing, and the thing you're supposed to be doing, he entered the pits and then heard the message uh, from Scott Elkins to stay out on track and uh, line up on, on the starting grid. Um, which was unfortunate for him, obviously. Um, but his he asked his team what he's supposed to be do, what he was supposed to do, and his team advised him to just sk skip the red light and continue on. So he was he was very conscious about uh, his his behavior there, and um, as you say, passing a red light is a major no no in normal everyday traffic as well as in racing. You just don't do that. And you learn that in karting and in junior formula, single-seaters, uh, single-seater championships. It's a no-no. Don't p pass a red light uh, at the pit exit. Uh, but he did so nevertheless and was very conscious about it, as I say. Um, unfortunate, of course. And uh, I understand the thought of the team making the job of the race direction a bit easier and all of that. But, um, yeah the penalty was was deserved in my eyes definitely and which then it, it just as i said i dropped it dropped him out of the championship uh, well out of the championship points which makes it even more harder for him yeah it's going into it New kind York. of dropped him out of the championship hunt hunt as well so you you know you're looking now uh, as a like a degrassi but degrassi is 32 points behind i believe it is yep so you know, with 58 points to go, it could be wrapped up. It could the championship could be Vans come the first race and the Saturday race in New York. I don't want to say anything wrong, wrong, but I think Van only needs fifth now in the Saturday race of of uh, New York to seal his championship. It's crazy. So not not um, yeah. It's well, it's it's crazy how it's been so close for so long, and it's just and it's just it's just extended and it's just gone, and, and all of a sudden, it's like it's it's it's, it's so in one person's control. He's just been fantabulous in these last three races. He won. Yeah, he has been brilliant. He, he, he won brilliant. Monaco. He was on the podium in Berlin. Won Switzerland again this year. Um, just amazing three races, and the others didn't have great days in, in Switzerland um, and I was saying bef heading into this weekend these five championship contenders we had before Switzerland um, they needed perfect races now they weren't allowed to make any mistakes if they wanted to have their championships Chimp Hope still staying alive and Degrassi had a terrible qualifying Lotra had the penalty uh, who else? Felix da Costa finished outside of the points. And uh, yeah, let's not talk about Robin Freins <laughs> because he had a, a terrible <laughs> day uh, being spun out on lap one by uh, Jerome Damrosi, obviously. Um, so Degrassi took two points. Uh, he finished in P9 after the uh, penalty against Lotterer. And he's still second in the championship, but a long way off. And realistically speaking, it's 
pretty much only Jeff left. It's, it's his championship lose. to lose now, is it? Yeah, it is. It really is. So then we had Maximilian Gunther who capped off an amazing, amazing weekend in fifth with Daniel at six. And now Alex Lynn, um, a little tiny bit on him before we go. Oh, yeah. Seventh. Now, he's done such a great job since he's been back. He's been a bit unlucky in, in some races, but like if Jaguar are ready for that second seat and if that's still, you know, not Alex's, then, you know, if you're another team... Alex Lynn's a good punt. He's done brilliant since he's been Absolutely, back. Absolutely, yep. Um, his his future isn't safe at, at Jagia. We should add that. Uh, Mitch Evans is very much uh, set, and I don't think it's been announced officially, but it's common knowledge in the paddock that Mitch Evans is going to stay on yeah, with Jagia for another year. Um, but Alex Lynn, as you rightly say, had a fantastic run and uh, really learned quickly and adapted quickly to the Gen 2 car, which he hadn't driven before Rome. Uh, the shakedown in Rome was the first time he's ever been in any Gen 2 car. Uh, he's not been involved in, in the development, as far as I'm concerned, uh, of, the, of this year's Jaguar. Um, or any other car for that matter, uh, because Virgin ob obviously were... Uh, Virgin are a customer team of Audi now um, so as far as I'm concerned Lynn didn't have any mile whatsoever under his belt in any Gen 2 car before Rome and he really was quick to learn and uh, now his second points finish I think or his first points finish yeah um, no his second points finish and, uh, and should it should have been his third points finish uh, because of his Paris and Berlin as well. Being taken out. So his fourth yeah. uh, points finish then. It should have been his fourth. So as I said, he's had a bit of bad luck, but when he's put it together, he's put it yep. together. So, you yep. know, I, I'd be surprised if Jaguar don't sign him up. I think if Jaguar don't sign him, it's because Lynn's got Aston Martin plans or something else is is is, is occupying Lynn. James Calado. Because How about I, him? He is testing he, for the team. I, uh, he's a good... good uh, I think that would be good. I think James Collado has really come out, you know, because obviously after that GP2 sort of era, he went a bit quiet. And obviously he's done really well in the WEC series with, with Ferrari. But I think like his his value has, has risen um, dramatically uh, and his publicity, he's, he's, he seems to be more everywhere and doing more things. Has, yeah. So I think that would be just, I think that'd be just as good for James Collado. But I think Alex Lynn deserves a shot. You know, he's, he's doing a good job now. Like you, you can't always... Take away that, take that away from someone when they're doing a good job, and punish them for giving someone else a debut. If I was someone else, if I was another team member, and I saw Alex Lynn on on the chopping list, I'd be like, I'll take him. Hmm. Yep. Uh, but rounding out top ten, we had Felipe Massa in eighth, Lucas Degrassi capping off a really disappointing day. Yes, getting in the points was good, but ninth is not where he wanted with John Eric Van picking up twenty eight points, pole, and the race win, and then Stoffel Van Dorn picking up the last solitary point in temp. So before we leave, to keep Dan happy, we didn't even mention Dan. Dan is not here with us. Did you not? Did you realise? Um, I hope you realised that he wasn't here with us. Um, he hasn't just been sitting in the corner and we've just completely ignored him for the whole podcast. Uh, he, he wasn't here. Um, but he will be back. He's... he's uh, house is under a bit of construction, so that stopped him from doing the excuses, podcast. Excuses, but excuses, he will be excuses. back, definitely, in New York. <laughs> so, fingers crossed. 
So, driver of the day, to keep Dan happy, because I know Dan, you're listening, and I know you'll be screaming at us if we don't do this. <laughs> so, driver of the day, Tobias. Um, it's, it would have to be Mitch Evans, right? Um, had a fantastic race. Maybe, huh, is it driver of the day or the driver of the race? Because my driver of the race was Mitch Evans, but my driver of the day was Max Günther. Okay. Yeah, I get, I get your understand. But I don't know, it's just called driver mm, of the day, isn't okay. it? Okay, so, so I'll, I'll go for Mitch Evans then. If it's the driver of, of the race, then I'll... I think there's loads that you could actually give it for. Vern's really easy, and probably Vern deserves it. But I'm not going to give it to Vern. Okay, I'm going to give it. I'm going to be controversial. You got a penalty, but I'm going to give it to Andre Lara because... I don't know, I just thought, yes, he had the extra bit of energy during that race. and But he, he managed that race really well. He pulled off some good moves. He made Sam Bird make a mistake. Like, that's hard to do in himself just by applying the pressure. Moved forward. And I thought, really, despite the penalty, overlooking the penalty, did a really good really good race and was just unfortunate. Yes, he, did, he committed, you know, racing suicide in a sense by crossing a red line. And really, that might not make him driver of the day, and I might make him, you know, dumb of the day. But I, I, watching that race, I was really impressed with Andre Lauder. I was impressed with a lot of drivers. Maxi Gunther, as you said, I was really impressed with John Eric Verne. You know, Sebastian Buemi, even though he didn't move anywhere technically, he drove a good race. So, but I think Andre Lauder is what I, where I'll go. All right, I'll take Andre Lauder as well. Um, I'm, I'm still sticking with with Mitch Evans, but. I see uh, I see where you're coming from with uh, Andre Lajra and he was a big dark horse in, in this race and um, as you say he had a lot of energy left uh, going into these last few corners and um, he could have gone flat out for, for the last few laps and um, that really made him very very dangerous and uh, he was in contention for the win for the win obviously um, Right up until maybe the last chicane. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a good pick. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to go different. You can't say Vern every week. Like he, I know he's brilliant. <laughs> I know he's brilliant, but you can't. It's just boring. Okay, and we don't do boring. We try not to do boring in race. If you're still listening, um, by the on our race of race driver of the day, whatever it's called, Dan knows what it's called. But anyway, um. Thank you so much. I think that's all we've got time for. Um, we've really enjoyed it. We've got the final the final episode of the season will be New York. We will, fingers crossed, be able to do some sort of stuff in the off-season, looking at some news, driver changes, testing. So I won't... We won't, like, keep the podcast, like, null until <laughs> season six. There's still, still be plenty to talk about. But thank you so much also for the lovely comments that we're getting on YouTube, social media, um on the comment sections it's really great to see that um you're enjoying the podcast if you are enjoying the podcast and you're listening on youtube give this give it a like that helps massively if you could subscribe on on youtube as well that that's grown the channel's growing massively and all three of us are really um delighted with that if you're listening on apple podcast google podcast any other form of podcast app we're on tons we're on some i've never even heard of before but it's great <laughs> please you know just give us a review Gets it out to more Formula E fans. Get out to more motorsport fans in general who's just interested in Formula E. It makes the difference. There's also a Patreon, which we don't really like to shout too much about. But if you love us so much, if you really love listening to me talk, if you really love the fantastic German tones that is <laughs> Tobias Bloom, then, you know, you can just donate. Just a little bit of money. And that helps. That helps, you know, 
improves our podcast setup it helps improve content and ideas and just helps the website grow helps us out massively so if you if you if you're feeling generous maybe there's a birthday present <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's so cheeky but anyway scrap that scrap that don't want you to hear that um, if you feel so inclined and if you do we'll, you, we'll, we'll be so generous and we'll give you a massive shout out on, on the podcast and so forth and maybe send you some formulary goodies if we have some in, in, in the office somewhere um, but thank you so much for listening we'll, we'll be back for the New York Epre in just over um, just under a month's time now so we look forward to seeing you soon bye bye